want you to know that like I, I picked First Peter as the first book that we're going to go through for us as as a church, as a new church. It wasn't just oh here's this looks kind of fun. I'll randomly pick something, but. I really think that this is something that for us, kind of joining together in this new context, this is really important and going to be helpful to us. And um, so I've been studying for several months, and Randy's starting to kind of get back into his study of First Peter. And before we look at it, let me just pray, if you guys don't mind, and um, we'll, uh, we'll get into it. So, Father, thank you for giving us your word. I pray that tonight uh, we would understand uh, these truths accurately, that you would use me to communicate accurately um, your, your word of truth. And Lord, help us to not just be hearers and, and people that understand and are filled with knowledge, but, but doers, people that are obedient to what you say, uh, for you're, you're worthy of, of our obedience, and, and we were purchased by you uh, for obedience, and so uh, would you help us to in, enact these things in our life. So what I want to do tonight is um, kind of look at a little overview of the book, and then we'll spend the next number of weeks kind of taking apart different pieces. And before I start, let me just remind you of this. Um, I like to do this every time we kind of would, every time we come to maybe a new teaching series. I want to remind you that this this book of First Peter is it's a real like this is a copy of it, but this is a real letter that was written to real people at a real time in history by a real author. It's not just folklore that just happens to be helpful to us, but it's it's an actual, the actual events that took place and there's actual purpose behind what was written. I know that sounds, it might sound kind of silly, like, well, you know, why would I tell you that? But sometimes, I don't know if for you guys if it's the same with me, but it's just easy to forget that. You can go to, to modern-day Turkey now, uh, which is the area that this was written to. And if you're standing there, you're, you'd be standing in a place that about 2,000 years ago, people received a letter. It was delivered to a number of different churches, and they would have said, oh, what's the Apostle Peter have to say? And they would read it, and they would, it, would, it would affect their life. So this is, this is a real letter actually written to real people. And so as we teach it, we want to make sure that first we kind of understand what's being said into that context. And then we'll say, well, how does that apply to the context that we live in? So Peter, who's the author of this, um, it's like bonehead Peter that we read about all in the Gospels that doesn't have the faith to... to walk on water and denies Jesus, you know, three times that he ever knew Jesus. It's this guy, but this is probably 30 years later, 30 years after Jesus, Peter had seen Jesus dead and then resurrected from the dead, and he has 30 years now of maturity, and he, he saw Jesus ascend into heaven, and 30 years later, he writes stuff like like our letters of what we call First Peter and Second Peter, and he writes it and just a few years later, he is going to die for expressing and proclaiming truth like this. So real Peter, this actual person, was writing this kind of stuff and probably crucified a few years later by the Emperor Nero. Um, and um, so I, like, I'm interested in what this book of First Peter has to say. And I think that as we, like, as we study it over the next three months, that we... Um, we should take what it says 
uh, seriously and understand that there's going to be some resistance that comes with with this kind of understanding and living according to this. It's not just uh, no big deal, take it or leave it, but this is important stuff. Um, so it's an actual letter written to actual people, an actual time period. And so tonight we'll just do a quick overview of First Peter and we'll talk about the first two verses in, a, in just a tiny bit of detail. Um, generally we're going to move at a little faster pace, several, like maybe ten verses at a time on average, but um, this is just an overview. So if you turn to 1 Peter 4.19, if you have a Bible, 4.19, um, this is kind of the summary of the entire letter, I think. Or it's, it's, it's definitely the what seems to be the main point or Peter's emphasis in writing this. So if you are going to, if you need to look for something where you're like, well, what was the book of 1 Peter about? Maybe put a star next to this. Like this is a really a, a passage to highlight within the book. And so I'll read it. Um, uh, several times, I'll probably say it ten times tonight, and I would encourage you if you're going to join us for the rest of the series, like even commit this one to memory, because um, it's going to be just a, a valuable thing as a, as a summary of First Peter. It says this, First Peter 4.19, Therefore, based on everything that he said in the bulk of the letter so far, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I'll read it one more time. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So if you need a summary, what, what the book is kind of about, there it is. And so I want to just kind of look at that verse and break it down into three themes that are common themes throughout the book of Peter. The first is this. The first thing that I hope that we would notice in 1 Peter is that, and he's going to mention this multiple times, is an acceptance of suffering. Um, accept that suffering for the name of Christ will occur. So here's some truths that he's going to say kind of throughout the book. In the first chapter, he talks about how trials can be necessary for testing our faith. He talks in chapter 2 about enduring through suffering. That's a gracious thing in the sight of God, he says, enduring through suffering. Also in chapter 2, we've been called to suffer. A couple times in the book, we see Christ sets the example of suffering, and it says we're to follow in his steps. Uh, chapters 2 and 3 give some specifics. It says, Christian slaves, they may suffer under unjust masters. Christian women may suffer under non-Christian husbands. He says in chapter 4, don't be surprised when trials come as if something strange were happening. I think that's, that's funny. He's like saying it's, it's normal. It, it's, it's not normal if, um, if trials aren't happening to you. Expect it or accept the trials are going to happen. Suffering will occur. Suffering is experienced, he says in chapter 5, by Christians throughout the world. It's, it's a common thing going on. So there's this general sense in the book of 1 Peter that we've got to, that Christians need to buckle down and this is not going to be an easy ride. Now this is a different message than some popularized versions of Christianity, maybe that you've heard. Um, but if you ever hear of a church that, that is t 
teaching that, that this life as a believer will become simpler or that if, if we're suffering, something's going wrong, Mm-hmm. then they're throwing out the whole book of 1 Peter because that's one of the main points that Peter is talking about is the suffering that will occur according to the will of God. So um, we, you can't get around reading 1 Peter without seeing his expectation of, his acceptance of, and the goodness of suffering. And on that suffering note, here's something that, that we shouldn't miss. Sometimes when we talk about suffering, I don't know if you guys have heard this, but sometimes you talk about suffering and, and people kind of take this attitude as if God is just kind of stepping back and he's letting certain things happen. He's not tampering with it, he's just letting them happen. And, but Peter, in this book, he takes suffering, I think, really to another level. He doesn't say that God's just kind of sitting around putting up with suffering, but he's actually using suffering, we'll see, as part of his eternal plan. It says it right here in this verse 419. Let those who suffer according to what? According to God's will. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. So God's not passive in suffering. He's not just sitting back saying, well, I'm just going to kind of stay out of this. But Peter's going to show us God uses suffering, he'll say in chapter 1, to refine us and to test our genuineness in the faith. And he's going to use our suffering as a way of evangelism, as a way of of our witness to other people. And we're not going to get uh, necessarily into all the theological difficulties of, of the idea of suffering, but we have to teach what Scripture says. And God says through Peter, let those who suffer according to God's will. And he says in 3.17, same type of idea, it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So sometimes we're going to suffer for doing good according to God's will. I don't want you guys to hear me saying this, and just so I'm real clear, and I don't, I don't think that you would take it this way, but I want you to know that God, God doesn't take pleasure in our suffering. It's not as if God is enjoying seeing his children in pain, because we know God like, created everything good and perfect. But since the fall, which is our fault, in this sin-stained, far less than perfect world, now he uses suffering for his glory. And we'll see in First Peter that God uses our response to temporary suffering to point the lost toward freedom from eternal suffering. I'll say that again. He uses our response to suffering and the hope that we display in that to point the lost toward freedom from eternal suffering. So it's worth it. It's good. God's will in this is good. And I think this, this letter, it's... It's not going to be so hard to understand as it's it's going to be hard to accept and to, to live according to this. Um, so Peter's writing to Christians who were being persecuted for their faith. Uh, it's for this reason that oftentimes this book, from what I've read and understand, is, is a popular book to work through in countries especially that are suffering from persecution because it brings them encouragement. And so you think, well, why... Why are we studying that in 21st century America? What's the big deal? But I think his letter is relevant to us. I'll tell you a couple reasons. One, there's if you look at the kind of the historical stuff going on at this time period in the early to mid-60s in, in Asia Minor, 
there's not necessarily persecution like comes to our mind, like imprisonment and death. Like those things happen at certain times throughout history and at certain times now. But the stuff that's facing these churches that he writes to, if you if you look um, kind of through the book, listen to see if you guys think that these types of things, if they can relate in our context. Here's the type of suffering, the, the trials that he's telling these churches that they're going to live under. They're going to live under non-Christian government. They're going to live maybe under unfair employers. Wives might be wives of husbands who don't believe. They're facing the temptation to live like the rest of the world. They probably have doubts about their faith. So if I say persecution, don't think necessarily people are being threatened with their life, but think more just discrimination. Like there's discrimination against against Christianity, and I think that we can understand that. Um, another thing is here in L.A. and North Hollywood, like this is one of the least Christian areas in America, maybe second to the uh, Northeast, like Boston or something. They're pretty um, pretty out there. But, um, but statistics are showing that Christianity is losing ground uh, in America, especially in, in the cities. And I feel pretty confident, I don't know about you guys, but pretty confident that we're we're going to face an increasing amount of, of persecution or discrimination um, against our faith. It's on the rise. And then lastly, I think it's relevant to us because really what Peter's doing in, in parts of this letter is preparing believers for trials that are still to come. So he says in uh, 4, uh, is it 12, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes as though something strange were happening. He's preparing for something that's going to come because if you aren't prepared for trials when they come, then you might be crushed by the trials. And I want to tell you guys, the more, um, I, I truly believe the more we engage with people in North Hollywood and Studio City with the gospel, the more we engage with them, I would say, just similar to what Peter's saying here, don't be surprised at the trials when they come upon us as if something strange were happening. Don't be surprised by it. It's, it's very likely to happen. And, and when trials come, when suffering comes, it doesn't mean that we're doing the wrong thing, and it might actually mean that we're doing the right thing, exactly what Peter calls us to, to walk in the steps of Jesus who also suffered. I don't know, uh, I'm sure several of you remember as we were going several months ago through the book of Acts, we kind of, um, we were listing out what are the characteristics of the church that we see in the book of Acts, and uh, one of those characteristics, actually the very first thing that Cameron said that came up was persecution. That's something that characterizes the church, and I think that's true, and that's the first of the major themes I want to just point out that are in First Peter. We need to accept that suffering is going to happen, and it happens according to the will of God. So take, just, take a deep breath for just a second. I know it... it it may sound like not just the happiest idea to start out like our new teaching series in our new church with like, oh, we're going to go out and suffer. But I want to tell you the other side of the coin as well. And this is the only way that we're going to make it, is if we remind each other of this truth, that our, our suffering or the persecutions that we face or our trials, they're temporary. And like Paul says in Romans 8, our present sufferings aren't worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us or in us. They're temporary. So I hope that 
We won't walk away from 1 Peter feeling overwhelmed by persecution that we face or by <laughs> suffering that we're going to face, because if, if we just feel overwhelmed by that suffering, then we've taught the book wrongly, because that's not what Peter is trying to get. So um, just hear this. If, if difficult, the difficult news of sharing in Christ's suffering, that in the book of 1 Peter is far outweighed by the rejoicing in the good news of the glory that we will share with Christ. So we should walk away rejoicing. He's, there's tons that Peter says about this in the book. Next week alone, Randy's going to talk about uh, just verses 3 through 9, which speak of hope that we have, resurrection from the dead, an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance we have in, that's guarded in heaven for us. He talks about a salvation that's yet to come, not just in the past, but one that's to come at the future revelation of Jesus Christ, the future salvation of our souls, he talks about. Also in chapter 1, uh, Peter talks about the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, he talks so much about the hope that we have. It should fill us so much that people should see our lives and be like, what's going on? We have to give an explanation for the hope that we have in our life. Chapter 4 talks about how we will rejoice and be glad when Jesus' glory is revealed. Chapter 5 talks about how we're partakers of that glory. Chapter 5, verse 6 talks about how we are humbled now and we live under submission and trials and everything now, only to be exalted by the Lord later. So Peter exhorts the church with this good news to be, to be a forward-looking church. And, or forward-looking churches. He's writing several. And that's kind of the second main theme of the book. We've got this suffering, but we're going to keep coming back to, as Peter keeps coming back to, in spite of the certain suffering that we're going to face, there is a certain hope that we also have. Mm -hmm. Peter's going to tell us, consider the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Mm -hmm. And if you remember, again, we looked through the epistles this uh, summer a little bit, and one of the common themes that came up over and over and over again in so many books of the New Testament was, was hope and how we're supposed to uh, endure suffering because of the hope that we have. Listen to how 4.19 says it. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. We entrust our souls to God because he's faithful. That's chapter 4, verse 19. Kind of a good example of this. Um, I was talking to a friend recently, and he was sharing with me just some, some trial that he's facing in his life, and really persecution from somebody um, that has been happening for a long, long time, and he doesn't see any end to this persecution anytime soon coming in his life. And he said, you know what, Jared? Even if I'm in this trial for the rest of my life, he said this, it's only a season. It's only a season. And I think, well, how could he like, say that? How could he live under that much persecution? But it's by this, I think he's entrusting his soul to a faithful creator who he has hope in and hope of his return. And I just want to stop and say, can we be a church that reminds each other of the hope that we have of the return of Jesus the reward, the inheritance that is guarded for us in heaven. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper on, on Sunday nights. We say, um, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until what? 
until he comes. We're declaring to each other, even in the Lord's Supper, he's coming back, he's returning. So, number one, we have to accept that, that suffering is going to happen, and it's according to God's will. And two, we need to keep our eyes looking forward to what's coming for us. And it doesn't stop there. There's one more kind of main theme that I just want to touch on, and kind of the intern to that. There's a, a commentator on First Peter that I read named Karen Jobes, and she says this, because uh, this is, could be a tendency that we might have. She says, Peter is not saying that Christians should complacently suffer through this life because the afterlife will be so much better. Then she said, and follow me on this, I'll read it a couple times, Peter's eschatology, or his, his theology of, of what's to come in the end, is not pie in the sky by and by. Rather, his, his eschatology, his end times view, it imparts an ethical quality of life now by setting present Christian experience within an eschatological perspective. I'll read that again. Peter's not saying that Christians should complacently suffer in this life because the afterlife is going to be so much better. It's not just sit back or we're just not going to do anything. We're just going to wait for Jesus to return. But his understanding of what's to come imparts an ethical quality of life now in our current setting, our present Christian experience, with an end times perspective. That's what Peter's teaching. So that's um, we live a certain way now because of what's to come. And that's why we read, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing good, he says. We're not just sitting around biding our time, we're doing good. So this is the third theme that I think is going to continue to come up in First Peter, and it's, it's obedience or, or holiness or, or really just doing good. So we'll suffer according to God's will, but we keep our eyes on a certain hope, but now we live this life with that hope in perspective and holiness and obedience to Jesus. Here's some of the things Peter says about how we're supposed to live this way. He says, and this is all affects our life right now. It's not just sitting waiting for heaven. He says, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you be holy in all your conduct. He says, conduct yourselves with fear. This is all in 1 Peter. Conduct yourselves with fear because you were ransomed with the blood of Christ. Don't live like you used to, he says. You are now set apart. You're holy. The time is over, he says, for doing what the Gentiles do. Now you live for the will of God. He's constantly saying, do good. Do God's will. Do good. Good deeds, he says, to do. And he's saying, it's like he's saying, you're different. Don't be the way that you used to be. In light of eternity, in light of what's coming, you need to be holy. We don't sit back inactively just waiting for heaven, but we have good work to do. And a commentator that I read... Um, he kind of believed that kind of the overarching theme of First Peter is the relationship between Christians and culture. And he says that we, we relate to culture by enduring their mistreatment and doing good and by blessing in return. I don't know about you all, but that's starting to sound a little impossible to, to receive the suffering or persecutions or trials that come on us and our response then or what we do is now to continue to do good, to do good works. This sounds impossible unless you think of what our, our verse here that we're talking about, 419 says, unless we are entrusting our souls to a faithful creator. If we don't do that, it's, it's going to be too overwhelming for us to accomplish. So here's the some of the bottom lines. What's, what's the world going to do to us as, as Christians in different ways 
we'll receive persecution. What's our response supposed to be to that persecution? Just continue to do good. How are we going to accomplish that by entrusting our souls to a faithful creator? This is the mindset that Paul's or that Peter's communicating in this book. And in a couple weeks, we'll talk about this word he uses, sober-minded. That's He's talking about we, we live with this mindset, our mindset on the grace that will be brought to us when Jesus comes. And that's, that's what drives our living now in this life. I think it's interesting that Peter ends the book with um, something that I think kind of slaps the prosperity gospel preachers in the face a little bit. He says uh, in verse uh, chapter 5, verse 12, um, he says that, that this is the true grace of of God, stand firm in it. This is the true grace of God. All that he's explained in this book is the true grace of God. The true grace of God is our hope for salvation. It's not the removal of our temporal suffering. The true grace of God that we stand firm in is the hope that we have. The true grace of God isn't that people are going to treat us well. The true grace of God is that God treats us well. The true grace of God isn't that we now have the ability to judge other people when they revile us. The true grace of God is that we can trust the perfect judge who's going to make the perfect call at the end of all time. And the true grace of God isn't that we get every little measly little comfort and avoid every suffering that we possibly can here on this earth, but that we have a rich inheritance that's waiting for us in eternity. That's the true grace of God. So let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Suffering, hope, and holiness in light of that. So real quick, um, let me read the first two verses. That's all all that we're going to specifically look at today. Um, It says in 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect Exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now there's, if you read the history and different commentators, you're going to see there's um, there's different views on what exactly are, are these people, who are these people that he's writing to, what exactly is this dispersion or this, um, this scattering into these regions, like historically, what's that talking about? And the short answer to that is um, I'm not 100% sure, and I'm not going to take the time to explain 100 different views on it. But regardless, Peter's addressing some pockets of believers who had been displaced in some way, And now probably what's happening here at the beginning of this letter is he's addressing a a historical reality that they're living in, but he's tying it in with a spiritual metaphor. So not only are these Christians displaced like physically out of maybe where they came from, but they're living in a foreign land spiritually as well. And that's a metaphor that comes up later on in the book in chapter 2. Uh, verse 11, he, he talks to them as sojourners and exiles, or aliens and strangers, you may have heard before. And so he's really talking overall about the spiritual reality, how there's this people of God, a holy nation that's living in an unholy context in this world. And so it's like he has this emphasis from the very beginning of the book 
when he says to those who are elect exiles, this emphasis saying that, hey, the church, Christians are going to be different from the world. And maybe you see how that relates to the three themes that I'm talking about. You're different from the world, so you're going to be persecuted. You're going to have to keep your eyes fixed on your true home, which is heaven. And you're going to live differently, holy and set apart, not by repaying evil with evil, but by repaying evil with good. And so he addresses them as exiles, foreigners, refugees, who are awaiting their home in heaven. And he also says another thing about their difference to those who are elect exiles. And by elect, all all that, that really means is that they were chosen or they were selected by God to be his people. So again, he's addressing a distinct people. He later calls them his holy people. So here's what happens, and this is um, a little mind-blowing for me. God chooses or elects some people to be his holy people, but then he leaves them temporarily in a foreign land as exiles. And I think it's a really great, like a two-word kind of depiction of us as Christians, elect exiles. We're, 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 we're made holy, we're, we're called out by God, but we're also foreigners living in this land, elect exiles. It reminds me of Jesus' prayer that he prays for the disciples in John 17. He says, he prays this to the Father. He says, I've given them your word, the disciples your word. The world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then listen to what Jesus says to the Father. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Christians are elect exiles. We're we're chosen in God before the foundation of the world to be not of this world, but then we're left for now in this world, and that should tell us something, that there's purpose behind us being here, and Peter's going to give us some insight into that. But he's addressing God's people in society. So I think that's that's us. I think we should have perked ears like, well, what's Peter going to say about God's people in society? Verse 2 talks a little bit more about um, the election of God and his purpose behind it. So if you look there real quick, verse 2, um, if you're reading out of ESV, you could transfer where it says elect in verse 1. That's what he's continuing the thought of. The elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now this is like, this is really theological language, but just give me a couple minutes to explain the encouragement behind these words that he says. First of all, he says we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Our position with him being chosen by God to be his holy people. It started a long time ago. It originated in the mind of the Father before the foundation of the world, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 1. And I think Peter's using this to set up everything that he's going to talk about in the book, all the difficulties that accompany lives as elect exiles. He's starting off by saying, it's all according to the mind, the will of the Father. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. He chose us in eternity past, and we should be comforted by that. This isn't happening. Our lives aren't happening outside of his will, that he has chosen the path that he has for us. And we were elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Not only that, but secondly, we're elect, it says, by means of or in the sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification, another theological word, just means to 
to take something or someone and set them apart for a specific use. Well, who's the one that's accomplishing that setting apart of us? It's the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. which I think should be comforting to us because it's like, oh, good, we don't have to, we don't have to do that work, but it's, it's the work of God in us that is setting us apart to be holy, to be um, his people, to live obediently. I thank the Lord that that's not just up, up to my doing, but it's the power of the Holy Spirit that gives distinction from the world. It's, it's God himself, and we should be comforted in that too. Right. So our election, it originates with God's mind, according to God's plan, and then it's enacted by his spirit, by the sanctifying work of his spirit. And then where does this election lead us? The last portion of his, of his sentence here, to obedience to Jesus Christ. Being chosen by God, as I said earlier, doesn't mean that we sit around and we do nothing and we wait for the end. The result of being elect according to the foreknowledge of God, set apart by the Spirit, the result of that is obedience to Jesus. You look at what he says to obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. You think, well, that's odd. Like, why is he like bringing in this sprinkling idea with blood? And I think he's making a reference to to the Mosaic Covenant. I'll read a tiny bit from Exodus 24, where God has delivered the Ten Commandments. He's delivered other laws to Moses to communicate to the people. And when that covenant is going to be confirmed between God and the people, here's what it says. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words of the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel and he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord and Moses listen to this Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood and threw it against the altar then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and they said again All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And listen to this. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So to confirm the the Mosaic covenant, the people pledge their obedience to God and that covenant is, is ratified by the sprinkling of the blood. And similarly... And according to God's plan and his foreknowledge and the sanctification of the Spirit, we are elect for the purpose of obedience to the Lord. And he's ratified this new covenant with him by the sprinkling of blood, so to speak, in our own lives. We are bound now to Jesus, to obey Jesus' commands. And I think this is, like, it sounds so simple, but I think it's so important. As like, The more people that I talk to, to, to just live in this area, there's so much... Um, there's a lot of spirituality. There's a lot of, I believe in a higher power. I believe in, in a, a spirit of some sort, but it's, it's, it's vague. It's not specific. But our faith is, is very specific. The one that we serve, the one that we obey, he is very specific. God the Father chose us before the foundation of the world. The Holy Spirit consecrates us for the purpose of obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. And it's only in that sprinkling of Jesus' blood that we can be redeemed. It's a, it's a specific message and there's no other way. And we don't want to um, ever want to leave that behind. So 
y'all, this is a, it's a serious book. Like, the more I read it, I realize, man, this is serious. Again, with, with suffering kind of being one of the major themes. But again, if we understand it correctly, we should walk away rejoicing that we participate in the sufferings of Christ and he's going to return to bring us home. And that's why I think this is an encouragement to persecuted churches around around the globe. Um, Grace is mentioned, I think, eight times in this book, this word charis. So it's a book that's filled with grace. Uh, He says that right um, up at the beginning, the last little portion, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. He ends the book by saying, peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is good news, and we're going to rejoice as we read it. And I pray that um, it will communicate uh, grace and peace to us as well. In fact, let me pray that right now. God, I just ask that you um, would, would fill us with joy in this life that you've called us to here, that we would be um, have the privilege of, and though I don't understand fully what it means, the privilege of, of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And Lord, we rejoice that that is for a time and that we will uh, know you more fully and apart from sin at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we look forward to that day with great and, and certain hope. Thank you for it. Amen. Amen.